0: Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of the Coltech Boston Tech Leaders podcast series. Today we have the, the great pleasure of having Keith Nichols on the show today. Uh, Keith is the VP of IT systems at Justin's. Uh, he's a technology executive with over 20 years experience of leading global commerce and SaaS platforms for major retailers like Sephora, Restoration Hardware, more recently Justin's, and obviously SaaS platforms for Zinio and Delivery Agent. He's got a wealth of experience delivering complex projects for mobile omnichannel commerce, data projects, API integrations, and the list goes on. Keith's known in the industry for being an expert at navigating turnaround and high growth situations and leading digital transformations and growth in key areas to enable the business strategy to be successful for his businesses. So that's a bit of an introduction for me Keith, but it's always nice to hear from the guests in a bit more detail about themselves and, and their experience. So would you like to let us know a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure, my pleasure. And a pleasure to talk with your audience today, Patrick. So my background has been kind of an interesting journey. I've been in the tech industry, as you've indicated, for over 20 years. I started at the beginning of the dot-com boom, you know, and believe it or not, I started my career actually as a managing editor with Ziff Davis covering emerging internet standards. And when the tech boom happened in San Francisco, I was approached through my network to consider jumping out and running a, initially a front-end development team. For a major retailer. I said, sure, I've been writing about it for three and a half years. Let's give it a go. And that's kind of how my journey started. In my journey, I've been fortunate enough to kind of ride a couple of the big waves. I did the dot-com wave. I was involved with the mobile wave with smartphones and tablets. In fact, kind of a fun little fact, one of the startups, Zinio, that I was with, we were actually one of the original uh, less than 25 vendors that worked with Apple on developing apps for the iPad 1. And so we actually had it in our offices and got to play with it and develop for it before the rest of the world had even seen it. So that was oh, kind wow. of a fun,
0: yeah, project. But yeah, that's a uh, bit of an eye opener, a great experience to have been uh, one of the first people to have worked on that product.
1: Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. And then some of the other waves, obviously big data, and then the movement to the cloud. So I, I have seen a lot of different phases along the way. And then now, as obviously we're heading into really the phase around machine learning automation and AI, which should be pretty interesting in the years ahead.
0: That's a, a lot of great experiences, I've Seen so much new tech come through. Obviously working in Austin at the moment, the technology sector is booming globally, but especially within Austin. What is it that you think is bringing so many businesses to austin and the austin tech scene was making it such a booming area at the moment
1: i have probably a unique uh, vantage point i grew up in the the bay area in silicon valley before it was actually silicon valley so i was born or raised in Sunnyvale and went through the transformation as it became silicon valley initially with silicon chips if you remember the the chip manufacturer and I would say what makes, and the reason I bring that up is because there's a lot of parallels between the Bay Area at different points in time and where Austin is currently, and what's made uh, markets like Austin a magnet for talent. There's, in the original Bay Area, right? We had, if you really go back and you, and you really kind of look at it through a historical lens, and, and you look at the characters like Steve Jobs, for example right? The Bay Area had a lot of cultural things going on coming out of the late 60s and heading into the 70s. And there was a strong tendency to blow up things and reimagine things. And that kind of created a cultural acceptance to experimentation and change and pushing against boundaries that were perceived as maybe not movable before. It also, as it evolved, right, we became a, a magnet for different parts of the globe. And so I grew up in an environment where the cultural diversity was just a norm. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. you, you work with people from all over, different backgrounds, different experiences. And so it was that kind of dynamic interesting cultural, social environment that, in my opinion, is what enabled Silicon Valley to initially take root and grow and innovate as it's done for now close to 40, 50 years now. When I personally started coming out in the Austin area, I had an older sister who moved out here with a private equity company when things first started to take off. So she convinced me to come out and start to visit. Also, I was coming out here for some of the the conferences and things like South by Southwest, as well as some of the tech conferences. And the parallels reminded me a lot of San Francisco, especially during the early dot com days. There's an energy level of. Creativity, And also, I think that there's a cultural aspect here, which reminds me a lot, of actually, of San Francisco at the beginning of the dot-com boom, where there's a mixture of arts, technology, and, uh, and innovation uh, mindset that's uh, really taken root here and is exemplified by things by, like South by Southwest. What attracted me out here was that kind of what what I recognize the feeling it reminded me. There are parts of downtown Austin, quite frankly, when you walk through it, yeah, I have to do a double take because sometimes I think I'm in the middle of San Francisco in the in the Mission yeah. District. And I will also say some of the pressure that's less here is financial, right? The cost of living in a secondary market like Austin is significantly different. Like when I moved out here in 2018, the cost of my house was a third. Of what i was paying in the bay area for the same size so i think it's the combination of being able to the quality of life is higher the ecosystem of people and creativity mixture is here so that it all kind of lends itself to something that the bay area has been struggling with due to financial pressures as things get more and more expensive it's harder to live and so as people in my experience i've always described you know if you've got somebody who is not in survival they're able to use that energy to be creative if you're in survival it's harder to be creative and so if you're able to get into environments where money is not a problem or is less of a problem it helps foster that creativity innovation which is the hallmark of silicon valley
0: yeah i mean this this is such a great point and yeah well delivered. The amount of ideas, creativity, idea sharing that we're seeing is amazing. There's so many businesses that have sprung up And the idea sharing is actually, between those businesses, is enabling companies to explode and grow much quicker. So having that community, sharing of ideas, creativity all around you can only be a good thing. So um, yeah, it's really, really exciting to see. And as I say, it's it's a great comparison you are making against San Francisco. The cost factors, you're seeing a lot of other businesses from the West Coast now moving into Austin for the obvious reasons, but it creating this hub of creativity, technology, just growth of businesses. Yeah, it's really, really exciting.
1: If I'm able to layer on another aspect of what makes Austin interesting, you know, Austin is the capital of Texas. What that inherently brings along with it is we have a strong government and military presence here as well. So not only do you have like the startup environment and more recently with a lot of the tech companies creating second headquarters here, including Oracle, Apple, Google, et cetera. We've got a really interesting combination of government entities military, industrial complex, startups, and established companies. So there's a really unique ecosystem where you've got all those interplaying at the same time. San Francisco, even though people think of it as the capital of California, it's not Sacramento. is. So it doesn't it doesn't. I actually think Austin's got an advantage over San Francisco because of all these things coming in one location.
0: It's a really interesting time and it's got so many positive aspects about it. And I wonder if it has become the tech hub it is and, and continues to, to prove to be. What piece of advice could you give to uh, or would you say you, from you, that you've learned when companies are trying to deliver digital transformation or transformation programs, how can they best set themselves up for success?
1: I've had the experience of working again across a lot of different companies, startups to medium-sized to large companies, you know, so that answer can be very different depending upon the maturity of your organization. But I would say if I was to take a step back and say, well, what what are some common things across those industry segments? I would say preparing for transformation, the, the number one thing that's helped out with all transformation, regardless of company size for me, is being able to put in place some type of robust integration framework you know typically i've used something like MuleSoft, esb or boomi from ibm or even one of the open source frameworks like apache camel and why is that important if you think about the nature of doing a lot of rapid transformation, you're gonna be moving things in and out of your architecture. And one of your bigger expenses tends to be the amount of work and rework that gets done for integration between systems. So what I particularly like about the the classic ESB model, Enterprise Service Bus, which by the way, is an evolvement from the original TIBCO type model of the Bus Framework model, is that if you get it in place between systems, it becomes a lot easier to plug and play things out of that model it, it inherently moves it more towards a services oriented model and, and eventually a microservices model by leveraging that so for me i would say and you end up spending a lot less time on integrations because of because of the way those frameworks work for me, that's been probably the thing that I always do pretty quickly initially when I go into a new company and I start looking at what we're going to be doing. I make sure I get the integration framework in while we figure out the other larger game plan. And it saved me a tremendous amount of time. Some other things that I do that actually are you know not very costly, but help out with identifying how you attack your issues is you wanna put together an integration architecture diagram and identify essentially areas where there are a lot of technical debt and you can get to that technical debt in a variety of ways one of which i've done using something like sonar cube to, to look at code codec technical debt you can also use your help desk or your development system to take a look at the amount of time being spent on emergencies so when i come in typically one thing i always do is i'll typically change whatever priorities or severity levels they're using most folks use you know and Jira right, is that's pretty much the common one I I cross the most. Most folks will just set it up, you know, using things like P1, SEV1 for high, P2, SEV2 for medium, P3, SEV3 for low. But what they're missing consistently, which is really easy to add, is the concept of a critical layer, a critical priority. So I typically will add in a P0 and a SEV0. And why do I do that is because if you don't have that, you're not capturing – really the things that disrupt work, things that cause folks to, to drop projects, whether it's an emergency on the tech side or emergency from a business contract or whatever. And they tend to, if you don't have that extra P0 or sub-zero layer, you, you don't know how much of your time is being spent on things that interrupt the plan. And it's an easy thing to add in. Otherwise, what I've seen is folks will just throw things in the P1 and then that intermixes with all the other work. So you don't have the ability to kind of tease it out. So typically in the first 90 days, when I go into a company, I'll set up the P0, I'll begin to change the workflows. I like to set up a standard software development workflow to capture what I call in-between statuses. So ready for development, ready for code review, ready for QA, ready for UAT, ready for production. And why do I do that? I do that because it helps me identify bottlenecks between groups and helps me validate what I call the ratios of uh, role types for different activities you know and you know i've got rules of thumb for how many qa people should be for every developer um, a lot of those are pretty industry standard how many PJms or product managers for developers however those things will vary organization by organization depending upon what you're dealing with so it's always good to have a double check um, as you change ratios you know and get things in more balanced to see if those bottlenecks get better or they don't, because those are the things that keep, I call them rocks in the shoe. They create things that slow things down and will eventually impact your transformation projects by a percentage. You know, It depends on how bad the things are. I also find that, again, if you're able to measure the P0s, we'll just call them P0s, uh, that's what I typically call them, are red alerts. I'm a big Star Trek fan. If you're able to measure that, then you can take those P0s quantify how much you're spending your time, if you get to the root cause, then if you start to address those things, you can see how much time you get back, which then can apply towards, guess what, transformation projects. Because you're either spending your time on, you know, moving the ball forward, or you're spending time treading the water and keeping from drowning. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, i can tell you a story. I won't mention company names because I don't want anyone to feel bad. But for example, I came into one company that was an acquisition from a larger company. And the CIO of that company, when I was going through the hiring process, he let me know. He was really, really frustrated with this acquisition team because they were signing up for everything quarter by quarter. They hardly ever made any movement on what their commitments were. And so he wanted to understand, is it a skill set problem? is it something else i we we can't figure out why this team isn't delivering so i went in and i applied some of these basic stuff set up p0s put in the workflow begin to track things and the other important configuration setting is uh, that i'll call it too is i always track what i could you know basically maintenance work versus development improvements, enhancements versus project delivery, right? Measuring teams over doing the same methodology year over year, I found typically a high performing team will typically have somewhere between 10 to 20% of maintenance work. And then the rest of their time is actually spent towards evolving the business through project delivery, transformation projects, right? This particular company, when I came in and I set up all that stuff and began to measure them, what I found was that they were spending 90% of their time on maintenance and only less than, less than 5% transformation. So, so what was interesting was a couple of sprints after I had that measurement, I was able to sit down with the CIO and go, okay, I'm validating your perception. Yes, the team is not getting any of the transformation work done. And, and it's because they're spending their time on maintenance. And so obviously the next question is, well, what makes up that 90% of maintenance? And as we began to drill into it, what was really fascinating was they bought what they thought was a SaaS platform company. But really what they bought was a company that was doing – they were basically taking the code base and recreating it for every client. So it really wasn't SaaS. It was a custom install with, by the way, enhancements be, that were different between each client for every single project. So the code complexity of managing all those different versions and not having the concept of a SaaS where you have a configuration layer in the app, right, which lets you scale with as many clients as you want, wasn't there. And so I had to break the news to him. It's like, well, you thought you bought a SaaS platform, but you, you didn't. You bought basically a custom code base that's being recreated and extended for every. Client that you got. And so that was a big light bulb moment because they were expecting to scale the client base from about 25 to 50 to thousands. And you can imagine if you did that model with thousands of clients, it's unsustainable. It's going to fall down. Yeah, of course. So little things like that can lead to big icebergs. You know you'll see it something that sticks out of the water and there's a lot more below it than what often meets the eye that's a good example of a real situation that happened and a real a discovery and so basically deciding to put everything that they were doing on that current code base on hold and then refactor it into guess what a SaaS platform and it gave them the ability to scale the business after that so that's that was a good a good example so there's a lot of stuff i covered in that example the idea of you know, these p zeros to measure basically fires or your emergencies, the concept of putting in place, you know, workflows that let you measure things between teams. The concept behind these things is if you're able to, to deal with the things that create emergencies, it creates more bandwidth to apply more towards transformation. So you're either treading the water and continuing to do things that cause you to continue to tread the water or you resolve those issues and you get more time and energy to push towards really evolving and becoming better. And I think we all want to evolve the business and become better. And another thing I've done too, which has been really interesting, is I've come into companies many times and helped them set up their PMO process. And with that, I've also established essentially a revenue in an EBITDA for projects in order to double check really what things we were focused on working on transformation and that's an important thing to do because if you're not if you don't have a way of qualifying really what are good opportunities versus what aren't you may find yourself suffering from first in first out you know being at the whim of the business and not being able to prioritize things that would move the needle more meaningful forward so i find that money solves a lot of problems and so if you're able to get rid of the the noise emergencies and then if you're able to have more time to then put it towards things that actually create more revenue or save more of your operation costs, that gives you more money to then grow the team to do more transformation. So it becomes a, a cycle of improvement. Little simple things you can do like that, that that believe it or not, within a short period of time, you can really begin to move the ball forward quickly.
0: That's so interesting because you say the, the overall impact on the program. Or the, or, you know, the transformation program that making little changes has, is, you know, a massive, right? So that process of thinking, putting that within your transformation program, looking at small things you might think are insignificant, but are actually slowing you down, you know, you put all of those things together and it creates a much better program. And then obviously saves money on the back end, which then, can give you the opportunity to scale the team with better people and then deliver better projects, right? So, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting point. Great piece of advice there. In terms of, obviously, you've seen the dot-com boom, you know, mobile, you know, and everything else. In the future, looking forward, what do you see as a piece of technology or a solution or a way of working which is going to have the biggest impact?
1: Wow, that's a big yeah. question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, and and you can't answer a question like that in a vacuum. I think as we've seen with like COVID, for example, there are world events of things that will change the dynamic of the landscape, right? And then your focus on uh, needs to change in order to continue to operate. You know, so my answer for that two years ago would have been different than now. <laughs> you know, my I would say in today's environment, if you take a look at not only the importance of being able to enable a business to operate from anywhere so that your employees can live anywhere, I think that modality is important because if people are able to live someplace that they're happy, they, they, they're more productive and you get the best out of them by creating an environment where they're happy, right? So I would say You know, some of the themes that need to continue, in my opinion, is the concept of being able to let people work the way that they want. Now, I I don't think everybody wants to work remote. I think being able to have a bunch of different models and letting people pick from that menu and say, okay, you know, I think I'd like to, I like going into an office because I like interacting with the offices. And and some of them are very nice spaces to be in. And And some people, they like to get out of their home space because, they can't be as productive there. You know, so there's this human part that I think we just need to continue to evolve. You know, at the end of the day, people are the game changers for really evolving your business. I don't think that's going to change even if we get into more machine learning or artificial intelligence or, or robotics or automation, because at the end of the day, you've got people that are programming those things. You know, I heard an interesting tidbit at one point I heard that Facebook had developed. AI bots that were speaking their own language and let them kind of run and, and communicate. So with the with the concept that they could innovate more quickly on themselves than a human could, but what ended up happening was they developed their own language and suddenly we didn't know what they were doing.
0: <laughs> you know, so, so it sounds yeah. like yeah, it, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they actually they turned it off, is what I heard. Now, I wasn't involved in that project, but I, th- I thought it was really fascinating case study because I think a lot of us think, OK, the next big evolution is, g- is going to be the game changer that just, you know, changes the whole landscape. And and we've seen a lot of them, right, with the mobile phone, Internet-enabled phone, you know, when that came out, what, what a game changer, right? I follow technology, obviously, really closely. And so, you know, I'm intrigued by... Some of the like a lot of the innovation going on, especially with robotics and the automation pieces, you know, but what I worry about is at the end of the day, are these going to become tools or these going to become masters, right? You know, and so you you can't lose sight of the fact that we're humans, right? And hopefully we're creating things that make our life and the world better and don't just displace us. For me personally, I completely value the importance of work. You know, having something to get up that you're excited about in the morning, whatever that is, you know, hobby or work, right? If these these are things that that make life meaningful. I do think that we need to continue to focus on, you know, creating situations that help us break through barriers of things. So, like I joke, for example, like you know, if you take a look at the American football game, right? It's kind of evolved along a certain path where they they think that. You know, there's a model where you've got these front-end linebackers that are just huge, right? And you've got these running back guys that are smaller and quicker, right? And then I've always wondered, what if they shook it up? And what if they got rid of certain types of these big guys? And what if they put in ninjas who had the ability to leap over those big guys without any problem? Like, what would that suddenly do to the game of
0: football? But that's a really good point, like the disruption within a sector by adding something that is completely different to the status quo, what people expect, but has just as much or bigger impact because it's a different way of... Of doing things right so it's the same as you know before in basketball you yeah. went for a period of all of a sudden everyone like in the team was people were taller before but then all of a sudden everyone had to be like power forwards or you had these giant guys that are more athletic than others but now you're seeing maybe some of more smaller players are having a who are more agile and can get around the court more having an impact that can be the same in technology using something in one way and there's one way of doing things and that's just how you do it but then all of a sudden you drop a different way of working or a different way of thinking and all of a sudden that completely changes how everyone does everything.
1: So your point, like um, I, I've, I've been fascinated with these workspaces, right? Where you could go and be in a pod around a bunch of different people that you're not usually around. You know, with that, I think the challenge is we got to find how to, how to navigate those things where you don't leak IP intellectual property, right? Yeah. But still yeah. get the benefit of interacting with different types of people. Again, as I mentioned, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, right? And one of the things i loved about the Star Trek series You know, the original series from Uh the late 60s, right, was the concept that in the future, they still valued non-technical people being on those adventures. Right. You know, and why is that important? Like when big data first started to break, I started having conversations with our executive team about, hey, well, maybe we shouldn't just hire a data scientist. Maybe we should hire, you know, archaeologists. Or somebody who deals with large amounts of data and analyzing them to come up with meaningful understandings of culture because that's what we were trying to do with that big data. We were trying to model an understanding of a culture, a.k.a. our our customers typically, right? And what better person to do it than an archaeologist or an anthropologist, right? And those people were cheap (laughs) at that point because they were undervalued because they didn't have the right technical skills, but they had the right analytical skills. You know, so I think this pairing of technical with different types of disciplines, I think, is where a lot of innovation is going to happen and because it creates disruption. Again, it's like introducing something into an ecosystem that isn't usually there, and then you end up evolving something through that partnership that's better. Right. So I don't put bets necessarily on specific technologies because there are game changers. Although, like I said, I'm amused and follow a lot of things from the evolution of battery technologies to whatever. You know, I think the human aspect is something I'm particularly focused on just because that's where you get your you, you can throw the best tools at any at any situation. And how often do those tools not get used or get used enough? Yeah. So AKA, the technology tools by themselves are not going to solve your business transformation problems. It's people. So yeah. how do you break down the barriers? And that answer, quite honestly, is unique for every business. Does that answer your question? I know it's kind of yeah,
0: interesting. It, no, it certainly does. I think there's so many different ways of working so many different things can come out. But at the end of the day... People are always going to be at the forefront of everything. Having someone to implement the tools, having someone to implement a plan, having someone to think around different ways to disrupt. One answer that it could be that the things that, you know, solutions or ways of working or things that's going to have the biggest impact on the technology market is people. One way or the other that you look at it. So that's a really interesting angle to come from. Thank you very much for that. I suppose one last thing that I'd like to cover and ask everyone on the show if you was to give one piece of advice to someone who's starting a transformation program or going through that challenge at the moment, what would it be? If one piece of golden advice, I suppose we went into a bit of detail about it earlier around making sure that the you know the little things are covered. But if there's anything else that you could add, that'd be great.
1: One of the things that I have always found really fascinating, like I follow Warren Buffett, you know, you should follow people that are really successful because they'll give you nuggets, even if they're not in your industry, they'll give you insights into things that you may not have thought about. He's got a couple wisdom pieces that I've used, but one that's applicable to this is never underestimate the power of compound interest. (laughs) <laughs> and and that kind of gets back to this incremental savings by improving model that we talked yeah. about if you can every sprint cycle you know find you know one percent or five percent savings of time imagine how much that adds up to in a year you know even one percent in a year you've got 25 dev sprints typically if you're on a two-week sprint cycle in a year you then you're talking 25 percent. that's one-fourth of your team's time within yeah. one year by getting what one percent incremental improvement every sprint, so it adds up, you know. So it's the power of compound interest or compound change. So the art is how do you find those things? And so hopefully by talking about the P zeros and some of the ready for statuses and changes, uh, looking at maintenance percentages versus innovation percentages, and using those as benchmarks to understand where is your team on that continuum. And then addressing those things to reduce time on maintenance versus being able to apply it to innovation. Those those are the things that I found, regardless of the the company industry space or size, it pays out big dividends over time. And again, don't underestimate the power of an integration framework. (laughs) I'll do consulting with startups, and a lot of them will be like, oh, no, no, we're focused on our MVP. It's not important that we'll do that later. And then invariably what happens is they have a a breakout opportunity, you know, with a, a major vendor and it requires them to have a robust integration API and they don't have it. And so it puts that opportunity at risk. In some cases, they lose that opportunity. I can tell you when I put in the integration framework for Zinio, the reason that we were able to do the Apple iPad 1.0 project that I referenced in the 16 week timeframe that they gave us, and that was from start to finish, 16 weeks, pretty short. For a brand new code platform, Coco at that point, a brand new application had never been used with brand new user interface, right? No keyboard, just touch. We were able to do that project because we were able to focus on really the application that was unique to that iPad. And we were able to leverage all these existing APIs that we had already developed for our commerce platform. And if we didn't have those APIs and we weren't able to stub out the application with XML stubs that mapped to those APIs, there's no way we would get that project done in 16 weeks. And we wouldn't have been able to stay in that group of initial companies on the iPad uh, one launch.
0: I think it's straightforward advice that everyone can implement. And that's not just technology or the transformation programs or businesses. That advice can work across all industries in any business. Look at where you are as a business and try and improve 1% every day. If you can do that, you're onto a winner. So that's fantastic. Thank you very much. We're going to wrap up now. I really, really, really appreciate your time. Some fascinating insights. Really, really interesting to hear about your career and everything you've achieved. So um, thank you for being a part of the show. My pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. No problem. Thank you very much, Keith. Have a lovely day. I'll speak to you soon. Okay, cheers.